This morning we're continuing our journey through the book of Matthew. Now Matthew is the first book of what is known as the, as the New Testament if you're newer to your Bible. Uh, the Bible is generally split into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is much longer and, uh, and Matthew opens up the New Testament. And it's, it's, what's, it's the first of what's known as the Gospels. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these Gospels tell of the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ through the eyes of those who walked with him. Now, have you ever wondered why do we have four Gospels? Some people do wonder this, and they seek to, like, put them together, bring, synthesize them all, and present one Gospel. Like, God, this would have been so much smarter if we just had one. But no, God, his ways are not like our ways, and uh, he is far wiser than we are. So he gave us four. But why? If you compare them all, you'll see that some of them have, there's some overlap, some of the same stories. Jesus is crucified in everyone, for instance. Uh, there, but there are also stories that differ, and timelines differ, and details differ. It makes you wonder, like, could there have been a better way to do this? But God didn't do that. Because the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ is far too great to be just contained in just this one picture of who Jesus is. So God saw fit to give us four portraits of Jesus Christ. And they all testify to, they all attest to the same Jesus Christ. Matthew presents a captivating portrait of this Jesus. And there's a sense in which as we, as we make our way through this book over the next several months... We're going to be stepping back and looking at the picture as a whole, and then also coming up really close and seeing the, the purpose and care that Matthew takes with, with every brushstroke and each color that he chooses. And as we take this closer look, we're going to see something that's pretty unique to Matthew's gospel. Matthew is very intentional to write his gospel as an extension of Israel's story, as an extension of what comes before. His audience is one that was familiar with the Jewish tradition, and Matthew writes his gospel to show how Jesus continues this story. Now, this becomes very evident in these opening chapters. As Matthew begins, he has one intention. He has one aim, and that's to demonstrate that Jesus is the king that Israel has been looking for. He's the successor to David, the Messiah, that Israel has been, has been longing for. He is the one who has come to redeem and rescue sinful humanity. Matthew's approach to, to this presentation of Jesus, this portrait of Jesus, is, is remarkable. And he provides us a clue to that approach in the middle of Matthew. In Matthew 13, 52, Matthew quotes Jesus saying this, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So every scribe of the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Matthew is that scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is like the master of the house, bringing out what is old and what is new to display the treasure that is in Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew's approach in presenting the old and new, it comes out right away in chapter 1. We saw this a couple weeks ago as, as Larry preached through verses 2 through 17. And Matthew is showing Jesus to be a continuation of Israel's story as he, as he gives this lineage, this genealogy of how we get to Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And at first glance, this, this opening to a, to a book is not very captivating 
are compelling, but Larry ably demonstrated for us the, the excitement and surprises and glory of God put on display in that list of names. You see, Jesus isn't just, he's not just a continuation of Israel's story. Matthew shows that Jesus is, is the target to which all of it is aimed. He is the destination to which Israel's story is meant to arrive. All of this is meant to lead to him. All of this is meant to lead to him, Jesus Christ. Next, Matthew demonstrated that, that Jesus, the baby, he came as Savior and Rescuer and Emmanuel. He is the God with us that the prophet Isaiah pointed to several hundred years earlier. And now this morning, Matthew continues the birth narrative of Jesus with the same purpose in mind. By, by bringing out the old and the new to show us that Jesus is this long-awaited king. Now because of his unique purpose, Matthew gives us, here in chapter 2, a handful of scenes to describe the birth and early days of Jesus' life. And I find it interesting, when you compare the Gospels, you, you read Luke, and Luke spends dozens and dozens of verses talking about the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. But in Matthew's Gospel, he just kind of passively men mentions it at the end of verse 20, 20, chapter 1, 20, verse 23. Through the eyes of Joseph, he writes that he knew his wife not until she had given birth to a baby whose name was called Jesus. That's what we get in Matthew. That's it. There's no census, no, no full ends, no singing angels, no terrified and mesmerized shepherds, no manger or swaddling clothes. Just Joseph's wife gave birth to a baby, and his name was called Jesus. But Matthew still has some remarkable details he wants to convey to his readers. And like that master of the house, he wants to present these treasures that are old and new. So this morning we're going to come to Matthew 2. Matthew, the scribe and the artist, is going to present us with these four scenes that set out for us the new and the old. And may we be captivated by what we see here. And just to give you a heads up, we're going to walk through each scene. We're going to reflect on what is, what is old and what is new. And then after observing each scene, we'll conclude with three reflections for us today. So let me read, and please follow along with me, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. This is the word of God, the inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to us through your word, so that we might behold your glory, and that we might be saved. Lord, would you help me this morning to, to preach your word clearly? Would you help me to get out of the way and receive your word as it's preached? And Lord, would you help us to have ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning, hearts to be that will be conformed to your word. And Lord, may you be May you be big in our eyes and our minds and our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to work through these four scenes. First scene, scene one, out of Bethlehem. This is verses 1 through 12. And this is going to be the longest of the four scenes, just a heads up. Now Matthew begins by setting the scene. Up to this point, even though Matthew has already spoken of the birth of Jesus, he has not said where it took place. And now, precisely to make his point, Matthew mentions the place. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, while Bethlehem was small and insignificant and largely irrelevant, this city was the birthplace of David, Israel's greatest king. And prophets had told that a new and eternal king would come from this place. This is the place Jesus was born. Now Matthew's narrative jumps right into the action by presenting this group of wise men who come to Jerusalem looking for a king. These wise men have traveled a great distance to meet the one whom they call the king of the Jews. And word gets out around Jerusalem. Word spreads like wildfire that there are are guys that are in Jerusalem looking for the king, but they're not looking for the king. They are looking for the one born king, not the one born to be king. That's what's behind the language there. They recognize that a baby has been born who is king. Born king. Not one who one day might be king or will be king. And in coming to Jerusalem searching, they don't intend to meet that man who currently is king of the Jews, King Herod, who we're also introduced to in verse 1. Herod, he was made king of Judea around 40 B.C., And he ruled until shortly after the birth of Jesus Christ. It's important to note that he was not a Jew. And he was placed in power by the Romans. He was a powerful man who who one scholar described as an unscrupulous tyrant. But he he still got a lot done. And he still kept order within his kingdom. 
So he was known as Herod the Great. So when Herod hears about what this group of wise men are seeking, Matthew describes that both Herod and all of Jerusalem, they're troubled. And when Herod is troubled, yeah, all of Jerusalem is troubled. Herod responds, this is his response, he brings together all of his wise men, who are the, the chief priests and the scribes, because he wants to know where this threat to his power is going to come from. And so what Matthew does is, is he presents these scribes, and these scribes, they bring out the old. You see what happens there. Verses 5 and 6, the scribes of Jerusalem, they answer Herod by turning to the prophet Micah. And they go to chapter 5, verse 2 and 4, where centuries earlier, Micah spoke of Bethlehem, the small and unimportant city, from which a great ruler would come forth who would shepherd God's people in the strength of the Lord. Now take a step back from our scene, just for a moment. Matthew is presenting Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah. It's been clear from the very opening of Matthew's gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, the King. And here we have the wise men of Herod's court, those who are experts in these words. They themselves recognize these words as God's words. They say, yeah, the king, he's born in Bethlehem. Like, you're tracking with me so far. These guys all say, yeah, God's word, king's going to be born in Bethlehem. Yet the only people interested in worshiping the new king are those who aren't Jewish. You see, it's not enough to know about God like these scribes and chief priests did. They knew about the one to come. They knew where he was going to come from. Herod says, who, who is the Christ and where is he coming from? And they say, oh, let me check. Yep, Bethlehem. It's not enough to know about him if you don't worship him and give your whole life to him. The wise men of Herod's court, they, they were not truly wise. Because true wisdom seeks out the one who is the truth. And it worships him. And this is exactly what we see happen at the end of our scene. We're not exactly sure how, but Matthew tells us that this star, I'm sorry I can't solve this one for you. This star the wise men saw, it led them to the place where Jesus was. And they were overjoyed. When they arrived, they, they bow down and they worship him. And they offer him their treasure and their gifts. Now this is another way that Matthew is bringing out the old. And what is new. You see, in, in, his readers would have known about Old, Old Testament, what's in the Old Testament. They would have known Jewish history. And in 1 Kings 10, there's a scene in which the Queen of Sheba hears about the wisdom of the king of Israel, who at that time was Solomon, David's son. So she comes from the east to visit him, bringing with her great treasures. And when she meets Solomon, she is taken aback, amazed by his wisdom and his wealth, saying it far exceeded what she had been told. And she responds by blessing God and giving Solomon great gifts. And she gives him gifts of gold and spices of which no one had ever seen. Does that sound familiar at all to what's taking place here in Matthew 2? Matthew presents to us the treasures of what is old and new. But that's not all. That's not where the similarities end. There's another story that comes later in Israel's history. Think about it, just for a second. So Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy. And it goes through these 14 generations. 
and one leads to David and one leads to the exile and then we get to Jesus and the exile was was an important part of Israel's framework of Jewish understanding so there's a story that comes down the line in Israel's history and it was during the days that Hezekiah was king of Judah this is about two or three hundred years after the time of Solomon and Isaiah 39 tells us about how these visitors, they came from the east, they came from Babylon. And Hezekiah welcomed them, brought them in, and showed them all that he had. All of his treasure, his gold and his spices and his precious oil. And when the prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and asks him, what have you shown them? And he says, I, I've showed them everything. They've seen all that I have. Isaiah responds with a word from the Lord saying, all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And sure enough, that's exactly what took place. In 587 BC, the treasures that were stored up in Judah, the gold, the spices, the oil, they were taken east to Babylon. But now here in Matthew 2, with the coming of Jesus Christ the King, Treasures are returning from the east. Listen to the words of Isaiah 60. It's spoken over 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And see if you pick up on anything that points ahead to what Matthew writes in Matthew 2. As the wise men from the east follow the star, see the star and follow it in order to worship the king and give him gifts. So we've got, got that in our background, in, in our minds. Wise men following the star. Kids, pay attention to this part. This is a good one. Wise men are following the star, and they, they want to worship the king, and they've come with gifts. 600 years before that, this is what Isaiah writes. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of of the Lord. In Matthew 2, it's happening. In Matthew 2, the light of the world has come in the person of Jesus Christ, and the nations represented by this group of wise men, who actually I didn't mention, but we don't know how many there were. There could have been lots, there could have been a few. It's not we three kings. Maybe it could be, but it's probably not. But they're coming from the east, these wise men, representing the nations, and they're coming and announcing to Israel. Where can we find the one born king of the Jews? The good news that this one has come to rescue and redeem and shepherd God's people. And they come to worship him and bring him gifts. And, and the people of Israel don't get it. The people in Jerusalem, they don't get it. And our scene finally closes with the wise men being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And as the curtain clo curtains close on our first scene, Matthew has presented this, this King Jesus, the promised one born in Bethlehem, whom the, the nations are coming to, bringing their treasures to. 
He is the one who has come to rescue and redeem and shepherd God's people. Now, scene two opens with the departure of the wise men and the appearing of an angel to Joseph in a dream. This is verses 13 through 15. We're going to call this scene out of Egypt. First scene was out of Bethlehem, now out of Egypt. Joseph is told to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt because Herod is set on destroying him. And verse 14 tells us that Joseph immediately left, doing exactly what was told him in the dream. And Matthew then brings out again for us the old in order to put on display the treasure that is in Jesus. He writes, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. The prophet Matthew quotes is Hosea. In Hosea 11.1, 1, Hosea writes, When Israel was a child, speaking the word of the Lord, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And in presenting Jesus as the king and Messiah, Matthew was also presenting Jesus as, as the new Israel. He is God's chosen son. Like Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt to be saved from the famine, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus flee to Egypt to be saved from Herod. Just as Israel came out of Egypt and were brought to the promised land, so Jesus must make that same journey. Matthew recognizes that God's purposes, they're present on every page of the Bible. And they all point to this climax, the coming of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is brought to Egypt because out of Egypt, God calls his son. And we're going to quickly go to our, our third scene, out of exile. Out of exile. Now Herod was never interested in worshiping this king who has been prophesied about. He only wants to protect his own power. So we see in verses 16 through 18 that, that he finds out where this baby was to be born, and then he orders that every boy under the age of two in Bethlehem be killed. Now there's some, some talk about, like, did this really happen? Wouldn't Because it's not attested to in a lot of other places. It's helpful to remember that Bethlehem was small and insignificant. And this edict of Herod's probably only applied to one or two dozen boys. It was not that many. But tragically, Herod, in his rage, had them murdered. Now he knows, Herod knows, that there are, there are two kingdoms that cannot coexist. His kingdom and anybody else's. So he must bring an end to the kingdom of Christ. Then Matthew, again, sets out for us what is old in order to draw attention to what is new. He quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, which we can read in Jeremiah 31.15. A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This verse speaks of the tears shed as Israel is taken into exile. Rachel represents the mother of Israel. Matthew compares the grief and tears of Rachel to the grief and tears of the mothers of the sons of Bethlehem. There's no comfort for this grief because their children are no more. But Matthew has more in mind here than just grief without comfort. His Jewish readers would have known about Jeremiah 31. And in Jeremiah, tears are shed for those who have, who have gone out of Israel. In Matthew, the tears are shed for those who have been slaughtered and left behind and have stayed in Israel. But in Jeremiah 31, the tears shed in Israel, they come to an end. The very next verse, after the one Matthew quotes, says this, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping, 
and your eyes from tears. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jeremiah 31 then goes on to describe the new covenant that God will establish with his people. The covenant is established through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who sheds not just tears, but his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. This Jesus is the one who will ultimately restore all things and one day wipe away every tear. Don Carson writes, The tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come, the exile is over, the true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. Thanks be to God for, for the exile is over and the king has come. This is what we see in our final scene, scene four, out of Nazareth, verses 19 through 23. When Herod dies, the angel again appears to Joseph in a dream, and he tells him to return to the land of Israel. As Joseph returns with Mary and Jesus, they, they hear of the terrifying reign of Herod's son, and instead they go to Galilee, to a city called Nazareth. Matthew then sets out the old once again. But this time it's, it's a little bit different from the other times because he doesn't quote a prophet or make his reference explicit. Instead, he just writes this in Matthew 2.23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does, do any of the prophets say that the Messiah is going to be called a Nazarene. But to those of us who were not around in first century Palestine, this comment, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Of course Jesus went there. He is Jesus of Nazareth, after all. But we don't know, and we forget, what a shock this would have been to Matthew's readers. This is, if, if Bethlehem was shocking, because of its smallness and insignificance, Nazareth was far more shocking. This is Nazareth of Galilee. It was an area filled with non-Jews, or Gentiles. It was separated from Jewish ter territory by Samaria. It was governed by a different set of rulers. And it was an area that was, that was marked by a distinct accent. To go, to go to Jerusalem from Nazareth would be like going to San Francisco from Tuscaloosa. Like, there's no hiding who you are or where you're from. Jesus was from Nazareth. Nothing good came out of Nazareth. Those from Nazareth, they were, they were looked down upon. They were mocked and had no place in Jewish society. And this is exactly how God purposed for the Messiah King to come. Isaiah testifies this in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was the one that was brought out of Nazareth. Now, as we look over how Matthew presents the old and the new in Matthew 2, I want us to, to reflect on three brief lessons. First, and most obviously, see how Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures. All that we read, every page, is meant to lead us to one person, Jesus the Christ. Through the stories, through the genealogies, through the laws and, and the poems and the prophecies, all of Scripture 
points to Christ. That's what Matthew is setting out for us in Matthew 1 and 2. So when you're reading the Bible this week, take note of where you see Jesus. It could be pointing forward to his coming through prophecy. It could be revealing the need for a Savior as it, as it talks about the depravity and the failure of Israel's leaders. It could be speaking of, of the glory of God and the one to come. In this book, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that can be found on every page. So in, enjoy it. I love how I was reading earlier this week with my kids in Proverbs 2. He describes God's word as the wisdom of God's word. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So we're talking about the treasure hunt that it is to read God's word. And by God's grace, it doesn't, doesn't take a lot to get a lot of treasure, but there's always more and more and more to be found as we see Jesus on every page. So Jesus fulfills the scriptures. Second, see how God purposes to be a blessing to all nations through Jesus. Now this was a part of God's covenant to, to Abraham back in Genesis as he promised to give him a land and make him a great people and that they would be a blessing to all nations. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It could be easy to read scripture and think of Jesus with, with only self-concern. But notice how in Matthew 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's always on mission. His revelation is always drawing men to himself. It's always demanding a response. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, the first thing we see are wise men from the east coming to worship him. God's plan for salvation is it's broad and wonderful. And when you think of Jesus, when you read God's word, it's not just for you or for our church. It's for your neighbor down the street. It's for your coworker a few cubicles down. It's for the family member that you just are dreading seeing come Thanksgiving or Christmas. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. So let's be a people who are ever committing, committed to making that hope known. And let's do it boldly and without fail. Because Jesus is the one who, who is at work by his spirit in the proclamation of the salvation that comes through him. Third and finally, see how God's purposes cannot be thwarted. He cannot be stopped. This is especially encouraging in light of the fact that he draws people to himself. God is going to do what he wants to do as he draws people to himself. At every point of Matthew 2, there's this tension. Because it seems like the life of this baby named Jesus is just hanging by a thread. As a baby, he seems powerless to do anything. The king wants to bring an end to his life. His parents seem to be running all over the Middle East. They go to this little town of Bethlehem. Then they go to the wretched country of Egypt. And then they go to the despised town of Nazareth. But God is sovereign over every detail. Even as Joseph takes his family to, to Egypt, God is still revealing himself to Joseph through, through this angel of the Lord that speaks to him and gives him direction. God is sovereign over every detail. God is sovereign in every place. He is sovereign over every detail of your life as well. And his plans cannot be stopped. There's no doubt that Joseph must have felt great fear as he sought to care for this little family, his little family in the early days of Jesus' life. 
He didn't know that Jesus was going to be preserved. He didn't know that they would be safe. I mean, Joseph, no doubt, was a poor, insignificant man. And Herod, the king of Israel, is coming after him, coming after his baby boy. What, what shot did he have? But God, in Joseph's weakness, God's grace was sufficient. God revealed to him where he was supposed to be when he was supposed to be there. He kept them. He watched over them. He worked through them. And brothers and sisters, take comfort in the sovereign and powerful God who works all things together for his glory and for the good of those who love and follow him. All throughout Matthew 2, we see this story of how God's purposes, they, they cannot be thwarted. He cannot be stopped. And his plan was laid out before the foundations of the world. It was testified to by the prophets, and it has been revealed in Jesus Christ, the despised one of Nazareth, who has come as the Messiah, the King, the Savior of the world. Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Brothers and sisters, take a step back and, and think about what we are doing here this morning. We, it's the year is 2020, and we're gathered together on a farm, and we're talking about a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago. But we're not just talking about him. We're here to worship him because he came and he lived the life that we couldn't live. He lived sinlessly in perfect obedience to the will of God. And we can't do that. None of us are righteous. We all fail. We all sin. We all make mistakes. We all do wrong. But Jesus never did. But Jesus took upon himself our sorrow. He carried our sorrows. He took upon himself our griefs, our shame. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds, we are healed. This Jesus who came out of Bethlehem, out of Egypt, out of exile, out of Nazareth, this Jesus, he came as king to save the world by dying for us. He has rescued us from sin. He has redeemed us by his blood. He has given us life in his name. This is the Jesus that we're coming to behold and to look to over these next several months as we study this book of Matthew. And there is no one like him. Thanks be to God for, for the revelation of Jesus Christ that we see in his word. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for your marvelous grace that's put on display in your word. Thank you that this baby came, the God-man came, the word became flesh. And thank you that we have seen his glory. Lord, may, may we trust him more and more. And Lord, for those who are here who do not know Jesus as their Savior, Lord, would you work in their hearts and soften their hearts to respond by, by confessing their sins and coming to him as the only one who can bear the weight of their hopes the only one who can bear the weight of their sin. Lord, thank you that in Jesus we find life that will 
never fail, eternal life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.